Hello and welcome to Dissecting a Frog, a podcast about writing, performing and producing comedy, hosted by me, Luke Morris. This week we talked to Tom Ballard, a former host on Triple J Radio's breakfast show. He had his own TV show, Tonightly. He's uh, an occasional host on the very serious panel program Q&A. Uh, he ran the podcast like I'm a six-year-old. Has a new podcast, Serious Danger, that he hosts with Emerald Moon. Uh, he's written a book, I'm Millennial. And he's an amazing stand-up comic. So that's a lot of things. And we talk about a lot of those things. Uh, plus, we chat about the comparisons between American and Australian comedy writing. We talk about structuring a show, uh, what it is and how to write satire. And uh, I asked, I started off by asking Tom, how do you host something? How do you interview people? Because... I wasn't going to pass up the opportunity to quiz Tom Ballard about how to quiz guests. And like with everything, he was very friendly and open and uh, was just a great person to chat to about some really interesting things. So if you enjoy listening to great people to chat to about some really interesting comedy things, why don't you support Comedy Victoria uh, and go to the website comedyvictoria.com.au Follow at Comedy Vic. Um, we're supporting comedians with some shows coming up, and uh, we do a lot of other things to help in the industry. So just follow us, and that helps. Uh, but now, oh, important uh, Deadlock is on Amazon Prime. Uh, that's created by the amazing duo, uh, Kate McLennan and Kate McCartney. Uh, Tom Ballard is in that show, along with uh, other people. Other Other people are in it. It's not just him. There's other people. Uh, but if you have a Prime subscription or if you don't and just have a login somehow, check out Deadlock. It should be out there now, I believe. It's out now. Deadlock. You can stop this and go, but don't. Actually, listen now and then go check out Deadlock because right now we're going to jump into the interview and dissect the frog of, let's go, political comedy with Tom Ballard. <laughs> The first question I've got for you, because this is something I've wanted to ask people a lot, and you're the first person who's probably got the most knowledge, how to host something, how to to be the host and the interviewer for... Almost anything. You've done a lot of that over the years. Do you have any tips for me or anybody else? To host things? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, it hasn't always worked out great. I hosted <laughs> two TV shows. <laughs> and one of them didn't get renewed. The other one got cancelled. So take all this with a big old grain of salt. But you don't, but, sit, but you don't sit around with Adam Hills and Michael Parkinson and chat about how to... <laughs> Get the most out of your interviewed guests and all that. Oh my god, I wish. Someone once said that Parkinson wasn't actually an amazing interviewer somehow. Like actually oh. when you look back at his shows, like he was a great guy and that was a great show. I don't know how he did that. He did manage to create this vibe in which people could be as funny and interesting as they liked. And he was just a very nice guy, a very likable dude, who was genuinely curious about everything. I think Denton is probably the, you know, the gold standard when it comes to really great interviews. 
and I've been lucky enough to talk to Andrew a few times about his process and stuff. And um, yeah, they used to, they used to, for that show Enough Robe, if people have seen it, they used to, he did all the research in the world, researched everything, then workshopped a list of like 20 questions, I think, for each interview. Yep. And then he would memorize the questions and then throw it all away. He was, he, he never had notes on that show. It was all in his head. And the idea that, yes, he had an order, he had a fallback. A series of questions to fall back on but it's also crucial to listen to what people were saying and being prepared to throw out all your preparation and just go with the most interesting thing that comes up naturally in the moment so yes across radio and tv after a while you sort of learn all these little tricks about interviews and you know asking the right kind of questions in, in a in a way that's going to provoke the most interesting answer but it's mainly about listening. It's listening to the audience or listening to your guest and listening to the vibe. We're trying to read the room in, in whatever way you can is um, is pretty crucial, yeah. Um, I love the title for that show, Being Enough Rope. I, and I was just mindful that I just stopped you speaking because you, you were going to say another sentence. I thought, it's enough rope. You always <laughs> Terrible hosting, Luke. Yeah, this terrible. terrible disaster. You're supposed to let the, the, the guest or the person speak almost as much as they can because mm. – the title being enough rope. Uh, They're going to hang themselves. Yes. Or enough space. Yes. And someone told me once, yeah, one of the best secrets, I think journalists do this a lot, is um, silence because people just automatically are conditioned to not like silence in a conversation. Yes. Yes. So some people will finish saying what they want to say and if the interviewer doesn't ask them a question, they'll feel compelled to go a little bit further and probably say something to either fill that silence that maybe they shouldn't have said or that is a bit more interesting than what they plan to say. So um, that's a sneaky little uh, a tip um, to get out there um, if you wanted to use that, yeah. Crikey. And when you said just before there was, you've had tips on how to structure a sentence, how to structure a question, mm. is, well, is there anything in that or is it really just the experience and you sort of pick that up along the way? Yeah, I mean, it's, well, I mean, the very basic things is like, you know, don't ask yes or no questions. I know. Um, things, you know, I, I think questions like, what was that like? Was it fun to do that? Um, are fine. They'll get you through. They'll fill time on air, but I would never lead anywhere particularly interesting. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, you, know, you see that all the time in, in Australian media. I think it just, it comes down to prep really. I mean, if you have the, the opportunity to really have the time to prep and to talk over the questions you're preparing with a producer for an interview guest, I mean, I think you really want to get to the crux of like, you know, what is the most interesting thing about this person? What is everyone else going to ask? Yes. What are the big, big ideas involved in this person's work or their political position or, you know, the issue that you want to talk to them about, you know, really trying to get to the crux of it. So chances are you'll come up with a bunch of questions, you know, first thought questions that you can probably get rid of pretty quickly because they're probably um, not going to get to much of a deeper level, really. Um, and the dream is for it to become a conversation. I think, you know, we got a few of them on tonightly when we did have to have a genuine back and forth. And when, yeah, the research goes away, you're not just working through a bunch of prepared questions. You're actually having a conversation. You're listening to what they're saying. You're feeding back to them. You're pushing, you're challenging in a, in a reasonable way that doesn't make, you know, that doesn't come across as rude, I suppose. Like you're, you're grateful this person's talking to you. You're giving them the space to answer, but you're challenging them with questions that, you know, that uh, that might, if you disagree with them, perhaps, or that you think need to be challenged, then that's important. And I probably learned that a lot mainly through my 
podcast as well, Like I'm a Six-Year-Old, which was yeah. interviewing people from across the political spectrum, including people who, yes, whose politics I despised. <laughs> but always I was like, well, this person has given me time at least, and they know that I'm a bleeding-heart lefty. They know that we're going to disagree on stuff, but they're placing some level of value in a conversation about things. So that's that's worthy, yeah. Well, that's really interesting because one of the questions I was prepared was about the podcast I had from Rachel. So I did talk to other people and Rachel said she wanted to know how you feel about the fact that you're winding that podcast up. <laughs> yeah, I, I made the call last week as we were recording this to just draw a line under like I'm a six-year-old. I started it in 2015. Yeah. Um, there have been some periods in which I wasn't doing it at all. When I was doing Tonightly for a year, I just sort of said, look, I can't do this podcast as well. Then there were periods where I was doing the podcast but never releasing episodes. And it just got to a point where the work involved to make it good, to source the guests, to yeah. prep, to do the interview, to do the edit and then release, it was all just a little bit much. And I started this other podcast, Serious Danger, which I do weekly with my friend Emerald Moon, um, coming to things from a kind of Greens perspective. That seemed a much more, like one, one podcast is enough. <laughs> and if I just invest my energy in making that good, um, and we have a producer for that, which is very cool, so I don't have to worry about editing and that kind of thing. I just sort of felt right. Um, but yeah, you know, eight years, 265 episodes felt like enough. And I just think, yeah, recent years, I've just been a little bit like, just try and do a little bit less and do that better. Yeah. Um, that's probably a better way to go rather than pulling yourself in a million different directions. But I feel a little bit sad to say goodbye to it. And actually going over, I posted a Twitter thread with some of my favorite episodes and some of the big ones and going through the old episodes. I was like, oh yeah, there was, there was some really cool conversations here. And the very nice feedback I've got from people who've listened to the show for a long time, um, saying some really nice things about about the show that that meant a lot. So, yeah, that's nice. That is great. I, I was interested in that in terms of the you talking to people who you didn't agree with, mm. and how how that sort of strengthens your. I always I looked at that as is that how you do research. How do you um, do the research on the topics that you want to be talking about? And then you've mm. got someone who's taking the completely different point of view. And so you have to, are you learning more about their point of view by doing that interview? Mm. Or are you purely trying to get that interview so that you can have that argument? <laughs> Very good question. Well, the annoying thing is that I do some of these interviews with these right-wing fucks and they turn out to be kind of charming or at least like someone like Gideon Rosner, who's the public policy guy at the IPA. I don't know. I just, I find him ridiculous. Caleb Bond as well as a Sky News commentator. I find these people ridiculous and mildly infuriating. But for whatever reason, I am fascinated as to how they could have all these thoughts in their head and be so goddamn wrong about the state of the world. <laughs> so I think, and again, you come to it with the basic level of, respect in a way sort of saying look this person is giving me their time they're coming on my, my podcast i'm not just gonna invite them on and call them a piece of shit um, <laughs> and there's got to be some you know there is a basic a, a, a general logic or a general appeal to being a free marketeer and being a right-wing um libertarian you know there's a reason why people are attracted to that so at least understanding that appeal understanding the things that right-wing people say they value and are about and care about an idea like freedom for example we all like freedom yes 
and but then interrogating exactly what that means to them uh, being yeah. on the right and you start to realize oh you mean no regulation in society whatsoever and no taxes mm. yeah. uh, that might be a different version of freedom that would lead to a shittier society so let's talk about that um and I will say for people like Tim Wilson, James Patterson, and some of these liberal liberal MPs, or former liberal MPs in the case of Tim Wilson, <laughs> um, they are very used, both of them I think mentioned that they went to university. I think, but I think maybe they went, both went to Melbourne University. I think James Patterson's like, I'm very used to arguing with arts students, left-wing arts students about everything that I believe in. I, if you're a young conservative, you've spent a lot of time and effort really thinking about, you know, you're reading all the big books, Milton Friedman, and really thinking about the questions of ideology. And that's the stuff that I find really interesting. That I was trying, that's what I was trying to get to with the podcast, is to ask people, like, what is your political ideology? What do you have a cohesive idea of how politics should work? Are you a socialist? Are you a libertarian? Are you a liberal? You know, are you a capitalist? Why? Um, those, those kind of big ideological questions were the ones that were really interesting to me. And all these uh, right-wiggers certainly have thought a lot about that. Right. Um, I think they're wrong. And, I, and hopefully the conversation you can both lay out and challenge them on a whole bunch of fundamentals, but also, you know, do it in a vaguely respectful way um, and uh, and get to a good place, yeah. But that must be really challenging to try and have those conversations and what am I thinking of here? It's knowing, having all the information, doing all the research, mm. And then being challenged yourself. So you're challenging them, but you're being challenged back. Yeah. And having the confidence with what you've where your standing point. And and this this comes back to doing comedy on mm. stage. I assume also with audience members, you have people who disagree with your point of view, but you mm. you still stand really firm with that. And it's mm. In comedy, a lot of people on stage might be presenting something and they've got a point of view. And as soon as somebody argues out of the audience, it can be quite scary and you've got to <laughs> figure on your on your feet. But you, you, is it knowing your topic? That's, that's what my question really is. Do yeah. you think it's all knowing your topic? Is it your confidence? How do you, how do you stay firm? Yeah, I think, I think asking questions both about what you believe, about what other people believe, about how the world works, about what should happen. I mean, these are the constant questions of politics. They're the constant question of art. They're the constant question in, in a kind of comedy that I talk about. And if, if comedy or art is any anything, it is some kind of quest to get a better sense of who you are and who other people are and how the, what the world is, right? There's yeah. constantly asking questions, searching for some version of truth to get quite... <laughs> quite get a little bit philosophical about fucking dick jokes but um so yes in preparing a uh, an interview with someone on the political right yes i'm interrogating my political beliefs as well figuring out what they would say and trying to preempt that or trying to interrogate you know and sometimes they make good points i think that's something i've learned too it's like every now and again someone on the right will say something that you're like I don't have to disagree with everything they say. Yeah. Um, we just probably end up at some, yeah, we just go in different, very different, very different directions. So yes, um, thinking about that, reading conservative writers, hearing from conservative thinkers, you know, clarifies what you believe in. And you can easily point it out and say, I don't believe in any of this nonsense. This is, this is why, this is why they're wrong. Not just they are right wing, therefore they suck, but like actually explaining to both yourself, getting an understanding of yourself and trying to challenge them directly. 
um, about why they're why they're way off the mark and why their vision for society is a bad one is um, is really helpful. And I think there is a tendency on people on the left, and, and I understand this because talking to people you disagree with can be annoying, and um, particularly if you, if you haven't done all the reading and if you feel exposed or you feel like and and the worst for the podcast was having finished a podcast. And then later thinking, oh, I should have said this. I should have said this. Yeah. I should have said this. Listening back to it, going, what the fuck was I thinking of here? Yeah. Um, yes, but that's all part of the uh, the process of growing, I suppose. Yeah. In comedy, if I do a joke, if I do, if the audience disagrees with me in that they don't think it's funny, and that happens consistently, the joke will go. But I think my politics. I think lots of people would probably, you know, might like my comedy. Might not totally agree with my politics, but hopefully the comedy is funny enough for them to except you know me banging on about whatever i believe in um i'm sure that must be the case yeah really i thought people who come to you they comedy... might broadly agree with me but they might not like you know they might not be voting for the greens for example ah. or some jokes about the labor party they might think oh that's not fair but it's still kind of funny or you know even just yeah so i, I think when people go see comedians i like you know there are comedians i like who i don't agree with politically at all but who i think are very funny people um yeah. I think that's fine. Yeah. And how do you manage to mine comedy out of this world? Because politics, you, if most people who follow politics will know that, you know, you get up and you watch uh, Insiders. <laughs> it's not an hour of stand-up. <laughs> no, uh, no, thank God. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ, yes. I would love to see Sometimes Barry Cassidy's type funny, five. It's, it's no good, yes, God. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, pol- politics is inherently ridiculous. The, the state of the world, the way our society works is inherently funny and ridiculous and mucked up. And in recent times, particularly, you know, you'd say over the past decade, things have seemed to seriously go to shit. You have climate mm. change the whole time, economic collapse, Donald Trump's the president, for God's sakes. Um, people are exposing themselves as fools, left, right and centre. So there's never any shortage of material whether you're saying something new, whether you're saying it in a way that people want to hear about, you know, there was certainly a point at which there was Trump fatigue, there was nothing to be said about Donald Trump that wasn't hadn't already been said or was as funny as him just saying stuff directly as President of the United States. Yeah. You know, there's a point at which satire becomes redundant. Um, but isn't there, isn't there inherently the scare, like the fear factor of some of this stuff? Because you think... Oh, this repercussion is bad for us, and you, there's, it feels like drama. Suddenly, it feels like the, it's a tragedy. This is actually tragedy. This political landscape we're in, but you're able to. I mean, there's there's ways to make it seem comedy, but how do you how do you twist? Yeah, I mean, well, like sometimes tragedy? it's 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 like all you can do is laugh. Actually, I'm yeah. I'm working. I'm doing a debate at the Sydney Writers Festival. We just had a meeting about it yesterday. And the topic is the future is still worth waiting for. Yes. And I'm on the negative team. <laughs> and so we're saying, we're basically saying it's over, guys. There's not a better future on the way. Just relax, lean into it. The world's going to shit. And, uh, and we're all fucked. And just, just embrace that fact. You know, stop worrying about this idea that we have to fight to win a better future. We can't do it. Um, Capitalism will kill us all. The planet is on fire. Humans aren't going to get their shit together. It's over. Um, so I think the funness, the fun that we will have as a team in that in that respect, it's a comedy debate, will be in leaning into 
just how cooked the world is on a whole bunch of different ways, how painting a picture of the most bleak possible future and celebrating the fact that if you let go of all that and you stop waiting for a great future, you can start living an amazing life today, mm. a guilt-free day, you know, burn tires, um, start smoking, uh, do orgies, <laughs> have all the plastic straws you want, you know, who gives a fuck? Um, so obviously that's, you know, hyperbole, but at the core of that will be some level of truth about a level of despair when you look around the state of the world. And as much, I don't think comedy can change the world in massive, serious ways, but a room full of people collectively laughing when all they, all we can do is laugh sometimes at the state of things, um, for that night anyway, for that moment, that might be a little, a little balm or a little, uh, yeah, a little level of solidarity and comfort to people, um. And that's probably all you can hope for out of political comedy, I think. Yeah, but the way you describe that still sounds optimistic. I guess if we just focused on the tragedy of it all, it would be the future is bleak. And yes, it yes, is. You do need jokes. <laughs> jokes is really crucial. Otherwise, you are the news. And some might accuse me of forgetting that sometime. Or there was certainly a big um, reaction, I think, to, you know, The Daily Show was massive and The Colbert Show. And then there are all these other shows and Samantha B and John Oliver and then The Weekly here and maybe Tonightly a little bit, although I, I think Tonightly was a lot sillier than, than a lot of them, those other shows. And I think people started being like, oh, all our comedians are becoming politicians that are having sincere moments on air. And, um, yeah, it's not funny. It's just like right on or whatever. And I don't know about that. I think a lot of those shows are still pretty funny. But... Um, Yes, making it funny. I mean, the show like The Bugle, the podcast The Bugle that Andy Zaltzman hosts, uh, I just think that guy's brain at looking through the state of the world and coming up with a joke and talking about it like seriously as, as a serious yes. newspaper commenting on the state of things, but just making stuff up. And the ridiculous thing, things that he makes up just have a little bit of mayo on them. Like they're not that much more crazier than the actual things that happen. Like we talked about the... um the coronation the other week and Andy just listed off all the ceremonies that were going to be involved in the, uh, in the coronation, including the, the snip, the Royal sniveling. And we talked about the various regalia, the, the sandals of nonsery and such. And it was very funny. And it's just like, it's, it's like just one bit slightly twisted on the actual insanity of the coronation of a King and how ridiculous the monarchy is. So that's, that's kind of what satire is. You know, you've got to be pretty close to the reality and then you just put a little bit of um, spin on it and then what do you know, we're all, we're all laughing slash crying at the state of our political system and how fuck we all are. I think that reminds me of um, uh, The Thick of It. Yes, of course. And uh, that's a political um, satire, I guess, comedy yep. series. And I think there was moments in that where I, I, I'm trying to scratch my head on, on the head writer, but uh, he was interviewed and said he had people come up to him and say, how did you know that was true? I was like, we didn't. We thought that was a ridiculous thing yeah. that, was ha that could right. happen behind the scenes. And no, you're just taking reality, but you're making it a little bit more surreal. A little bit, yeah. Or Utopia on Australian TV now, yes. everyone who works in an office says, some bits that probably are meant to be jokes are just like that's literally happened to me. <laughs> um, I mean, the best satire on TV at the moment is Succession, of course, and Succession is pretty, you know, they, they're trying pretty hard to stick within the realms of actual possibility. The characters are probably, you know, stretched a little bit and there are a few more jokes in there. But, 
you know, they are, they're, they're the or whatever that word is about how accurate they are and close to the actual world of billionaires, media moguls and stuff is pretty, um, is pretty wild. And it's a very funny show, but also a very dark show, I think too. Yeah. But it really has something to say. Let's talk about the book because I'm thinking about the book at the moment with some of the stuff that you've mentioned there with the, the series of silliness that you can add on top of the world at the moment. And I'll be honest, I've only just started reading it and I was talking to somebody else who's, only, who's, who's also been reading it. And the thing that hit me was, oh, yeah, that happened, that happened, then that happened, then that happened all within six months. And you forget okay. the first thing because something else crazy came along and knocked <laughs> that off the pedestal. And then something else came. Do you do you see that? Do you see when you 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 perform on stage and you 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 remind people of something that only happened a couple of weeks ago and how yeah. crazy that was, and the audience just goes, "Oh yeah, we completely forgot about that." I forgot about that. It totally. was two weeks ago. Yes. No, it's. I mean, there's this thing called the memory hole we have in society now, where these things happened and then immediately, almost immediately, forgotten or just disappear down this hole because the new cultural outrage or the new social moment or the new political upset comes in. And of course, uh, not to be a hey phones are killing us guy, but you know, thanks to social media and technology, we now have more access to more information and more yeah. updates and things change um, more quickly than ever before. There's a philosophical term called dramology, which is about the speed of society, the way that new ideas are perpetuated, the way that things turn over. Yes. And yes, it's dr- dramology and uh, you can make a very strong argument that yes, at the moment the tribology is being turned up extremely quickly. So even you know, as the book is trying to recount the history of sort of the past forty years or the neoliberal era, but also you know, even just going back to stuff like when Julie Gillard was prime minister, feels so long ago when it really isn't. And the pandemic was so bananas, and there was just so many incredible, insane, surreal things happening every single day that anything happens before the pandemic felt like ages ago, but even, you know, yeah, as you say, six months into it, you were just like, what, what's our entire lives have changed. This is so bananas. I used to have a joke, which was about, about the pandemic being like, do you remember needles and strawberries? Right. Yes. And needles and strawberries was a scandal that we actually talked about for at least a week in this country. And I reflected it, you know, it often got a really good laugh because people just thought, holy shit, I can't believe we used to worry about needles and strawberries. Um, ever since our entire lives and society have been turned upside down by COVID-19. So, um, yes, I think you can get a lot of mileage and a lot of comedy material about just saying, remember this happened, let's actually really talk about this because something happened, it exploded in the news headlines and then it's and it's all over and we've moved on. Even now I'm doing stuff about the Queen's death in my new show and I don't know, it feels like every now and again I get a resistance from the audience. It's just like, yeah, we've we've moved on from that. That, that massive event that took over everything for at least two weeks. Yes. We've, we've moved on. That's that's done. We, we move on to the next subject, please. Do you write that stuff down? No, no. If something happens, is there, is there a notebook you keep? Do, are you one of those people that keeps a note of saying, that was crazy. I'm going to write, you know, something crazy <laughs> about that and then look back in two weeks or a month's time to go like a diary and just say, hey, we've forgotten about this and, I'll, I'll bring that up now. Do you, is there, sometimes, do you... yeah, yeah. Or sometimes you'll write it down. You think it's very funny in the moment and then you look back at it a couple of weeks later and you go, 
that yeah no one cares about it now that was probably i probably should have tweeted something funny about that rather than considering <laughs> that to be stand up that i'm gonna be able to tour with for a year i mean that's a big problem with the memory hole and the gemology like yes stuff people just um move on very quickly yeah but and they had, you can, they you can feel like you're trapped fine they held on to strawberries but they're not holding on to the cream Where's the where's the line, well, people? But the strawberries thing was a joke about a thing that you had forgotten about, um, yeah. and it was used to contrast against the much more serious actual thing, which was COVID nineteen. So, okay. um, I mean, I um, yeah, I've got some jokes. It's funny. It's funny to try and like if you can pull out a reference that generally surprises people, and they go, "Oh fuck, I haven't thought about that in ages." Um, in my show at Comedy Festival, I did a comedy lecture about the referendum and there was a joke about poison by bardo that band from pop stars in the early 2000s um and people seemed to really enjoy that and the impression i got was that people had not thought about poison by bardo for a very long time and so that brought a little bit of joy um yeah nate fallow the comedian is very good at that any 90s nostalgia stuff nate is extremely good at just hitting those buttons particularly for a millennial audience just being like oh shit i remember that that's so yeah. funny yeah well, the book's called I'm Millennial, and I, in starting reading it, I started to feel old, and I, because I'm just outside of Millennial, I found this out a couple of days ago, I'm, I'm two years outside of the bracket, so I'm yep. technically Gen X, and then I, I was, uh, I was watching something, and it reminded me of Sky News complaining about Auntie Donna, and oh, thinking, fuck. yeah, but... Only Donna's not trying to appeal to your audience, so hmm. why do you care? And that was the that was the about the same time I was reading the book and thinking, there's I'm, I'm enjoying it, it's fine. But then every so often there's there's little bits in it where I think, oh, I think you know, emojis is very on a millennial thing and I don't ever <laughs> use emojis. Or right. there's abbreviations and I rang up my friend and said, What does RN mean? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think it was Radio National or something? Uh, I... <laughs> yes. But... Oh, bless. <laughs> I found it really interesting in that you, you're writing for the audience. I think you're writing for an audience or are you writing for yourself? Or uh, Do, do you, do you care so. that yeah. Sky News might read this and say, Tom, this isn't very good writing because <laughs> emojis aren't part of the English language and you oh, can't just put them God. in a book? Jesus Christ. I would love that. I would love to get any coverage of the book, particularly from Sky News. I mean, it got a write-up in The Weekend Australian, and it wasn't – they didn't hate the book. It was just a very bizarre review that didn't make much sense. But um, uh, that Sky News thing is so funny. I mean, Chris Kenny, what a fucking piece of shit. (laughs) Just like, how can you not hear yourself? I'm an old man. I don't get it. I don't get something. <laughs> this guy sued the chaser for a joke, for fuck's sake. So what the hell does he know about comedy? Fucking moron. Um, um, but of course, yeah, that's great. It's great. Of course, Auntie Donna isn't for you. You old fuck, you idiot. But of course, he would say, oh, my taxes pay for it. And therefore, yeah. I should like absolutely everything that's going to it. Bring back Auntie Jack, for fuck's sake. Oh, that was funny. Oh. I thought that was good material. God, Christ. Because that's real comedy, apparently. Well, it's just like how could the level, the lack of self awareness from these fucking conservative douchebags? It's just it's, anyway, it's very funny. And Greg Larson enjoyed it, so that's the main thing, and it is probably a good endorsement. 
Um, if Chris I, Kelly says you're not funny, you're, you're probably doing something right. I wonder if he's doing that for his audience. He's probably, he's probably not. He probably he believes all of it. He doesn't give a shit. He has to fill time. He's getting paid six figures. He has to fill time on the news. He doesn't propose doing anything about this. He doesn't. He has no political vision for a better future. He just wants to rile up people who are pensioners who are confused watching Sky News at night uh, about the state of the world and comfort them and say, you're right, everything new is bad, young people are stupid, um, the left are, are coming and want to take everything away from you, just keep voting right wing and don't ask too many big questions about the way society is structured. But in terms of writing the book, yeah, I mean, I, I just wrote it in a way, I mean, there's probably an internet voice that comes through in the book and I, I quite liked the idea of like using emojis and pictures and you know, writing stuff that you wouldn't normally see in a in a printed version of a book. I thought that was yeah. kind of cool. Um, and yes, there was some stuff that I was like, I was like, oh, maybe millennials, maybe someone who isn't a millennial won't get that. And I and I was like, I'm going to change it. And I thought, oh no, no, actually, that's fine. It's fine to write something just for for people my age, and people can look stuff up. You know, I'll, I look yeah. up old people's stuff all the time. Um, <laughs> you can do the same. Yeah. I wondered if if. You so did you write like that on purpose for the book, or how much is any of it written for stand up? And then you tried on on stage, and is is any of the book been on stage? I guess isn't isn't the yeah, question. Yeah, well, it's uh, a little bit of overlap. Yeah, I think so. Or I wrote in the book some bits I write about stand up that I've done, particularly the boomer routine at the start, which is kind of you know yeah. Sort of at the crux or the inspiration, the starting best process of boomers versus millennials and the kind of jokes that you can make. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so a little bit of crossover there. I think I had more stand-up that I thought like, oh, this will work in the book. And then I wrote it down and I don't know, it's just it didn't quite fit the voice, I suppose, that I was going yeah. for. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's my first book too, potentially my last because writing it was a fucking nightmare. But um Yes, the act of writing it, I was also figuring out how to write a book, how to structure a book, what my voice is, finding the right voice for all this. And I guess the great fear as a comedian performing live a lot, you're like, well, I think this is funny, but I'm reading it in my voice with my timing and stuff. Are people going to read this book correctly? So um, that was a concern, but you got to let that go after a while and say, hopefully, I think it's funny on the page. And so... I'm sure people can deal with it. And I, you know, recorded the audio book, which took about five days. And I think it was about five hours long, but that felt a lot more natural because I was like writing stuff, reading out stuff that I'd written in, in my own voice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, when, when you say that you weren't sure if the book was going to come across in your own voice, my immediate friend's reaction was I could hear Tom saying all of this. <laughs> with his nasal, nasal annoying, <laughs> millennial whinging voice. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I mean, I think. Look, who knows? Who, yeah, who knows how how far the book will go, how many people will get onto it. But I guess I just, you know, by the end of the process, the very long, painful process of writing it, I did feel like, yeah, that is what I think and believe. And I'm glad that I put the work in to kind of summarize all that. The, the mission was to try and write the book that I wish someone had given me in 2016 when Trump got elected and my brain melted. And I was like, I don't know what the hell's going on in the world. How did it come to this? Yeah. Um, and hopefully, I, I think the book kind of explains a lot of that, um, that history and hopefully does it in an entertaining way. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely entertaining. I mean, <laughs> sadly, I've, I've read a couple of uh, books by comedians lately and um, yours is the one that had jokes 
right from the start. <laughs> so I'm very thankful for that. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I'm I'm curious because I, as I said, and reading it, it feels like you've written almost as a stand-up routine. It's a very thick, long stand-up routine. That's oh really? That's, that sounds terrible. No, but I mean it in a good way. It's, 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 it's you just said you, it's five hours. It feels like a five-hour stand-up routine that you can read and jump in and out of. But oh, you didn't you. write it like that. You 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 say that you you look for. It seems, from what you just said, that the way you wrote the book and the way you write your stand-up is quite different. The voice you were using was different. I think so. How far have you got? Have you written, have you got, you just read the intro, did you say? Uh, the f- 20 pages or so, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's no worries. Yeah, look, the intro is much more, you know, all over the shop and a little bit more flowery and a little bit more joke-heavy and doing jokes about doing drugs and trying to fuck people on New Year's Eve and... It's much, it's much bigger picture. Like this is why I'm writing this book. Uh, then the six chapters, the things that are big topic chapters are a little bit more, you know, there's again, lots of clarity uh, throughout. You're laughing and learning throughout the whole time. But, you know, the, the, the mission of each chapter is to actually try and explain what happened to workers' power, why, why the union movement was defeated since the 1970s, how the housing market came to be so cooked, including explanations of negative gearing and, you know, capital gains tax, um, trickle down economics, the privatization of the education system, and you know climate science. So <laughs> it's kind of infotainment stuff. After a while, I think it's probably all in the same realm as like you know a John Oliver long long think piece to try and give a huge overview of a topic, or the kind of deep dives we used to do on Tonightly. I think that's kind of the the realm. And always keeping in mind that there should be jokes. You can't go down too many rabbit holes. But there was just some stuff like I really wanted to explain in a simple way, like what inflation is, how it works. Um, there's a section on modern monetary theory. Uh, there's a section on, um, you know, privatization of, of Qantas and Commonwealth Bank and just actually explain what that meant and what that looked like in a way that other young people could kind of get their hand, head around it, I suppose. Yeah. Well, that's unique. So when you say that you had to learn how to structure a book, that almost the way you've said it there it sounds like structuring of a a stand-up routine when you punch in a few easy jokes to start <laughs> off with and then you start telling a bit more of a story that I think so. yeah you, you, i mean you, the same you, you, skills you, of writing writing an hour show and you know structures has been in previous hour shows i've done really important you know setting things up putting all your funny you know really funny stuff at the start to make people trust you you build a level of trust with an audience like we're funny this is going to be fun it's all good you know kind of little um what is it vegetables and dessert or whatever a few veg few, you know lots of dessert some vegetables help it all go down yeah i think it's constantly a balance i think i i've done these two shows these comedy lecture shows too before which is trying to you know interrogate serious political issues and run through some history of, of things when it comes to refugee rights and also the referendum that we've got this year and the mission is like, that's what I'm trying to explain. That's the topic of the show. Let's do this in the most fun way possible, including the dumbest um, uh, deviations that you that you prepared to go to. Like, I'll, I'll go this far just so I can show a stupid photo or we'll focus on someone's stupid name or do a dick joke when we're talking about the history of economic theory, you know, whatever you can to sort of just keep people with you throughout, I suppose, yeah. Is that is that conscious? Then are you trying to keep people with you with with the 
jokes or why do you put the jokes in there? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, again, the initial version of the book was way too long, was trying to do too much and took it so far too seriously. And we sort of, the book was supposed to come out in 2021, but it wasn't ready. So we pushed it all back a year. And in that sort of reconfiguring process, we sort of said, you know, remember that you're funny, Todd. People want it, People don't want to hear an economics lecture from you. They want to hear the big ideas and get a general sense of what you're talking about, but they want to be entertained along the way. Um, so I suppose, and, and just recognising that's the skill that I have, you know, that's yeah. my unique selling point. I'm just reading stuff off Wikipedia here. So, so I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, but I've tried to get my head around it as much as possible. And if people, if I can communicate that to people in a kind of, yeah, pop politics way, and make people laugh along the way too, that's that could be valuable. That's that's good. I, I, I want to keep asking you about that, but I'm mindful of time, so I'm going to change gear a little bit because Rachel, good hosting, great hosting, really good hosting. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, Rachel wanted to know, and this is almost a quote: "How do you remain so smart?" (laughs) Now, I, I wanted to, I want, I asked her more about that, and basically, what the question was meaning was, "How do you stay on top of all the topics?" Because, like, I know you said you're basically repeating Wikipedia. I don't believe that. I believe you've done more research than that. But you've we've, we've covered a lot of topics and you've interviewed a lot of different people. Hmm. And you and in order to do effectively the question is what kind of research do you do on a daily basis to maintain being on top so that when you have these interviews of the with the right or you hmm. you're covering economic questions like can you remain smart on all those topics? Is is there is there a digest that you you watch ABC, then the Bolt Report, then the Australian, then the Guardian? Do you oh, go through God all no. of this stuff? Jesus no. Christ. Ha, ha, no. Do you have a daily routine? That's basically the question. Well, that's a very nice question. Thank you, Rachel. And uh, uh, a lovely compliment that I think is inaccurate, but I will accept. <laughs> um, I think that in yeah, there's no there's no regular schedule. Twitter is still my kind of news, vague news source, which is, yeah, scrolling through Twitter, seeing what people are talking about, seeing what's trending and clicking on any articles that interest me. But in terms of keeping across news, yeah, all I can be is a generalist um, and you just try and vaguely have a sense of what's going on 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 the big issues of the week, I suppose. Um, And mainly that's in the form of like, I get the 7 a.m. email post, which just picks the five big stories of the day and in about four paragraphs gives you the stuff you need to know. There are links through that you can read further if you so wish. But, you know, just keeping a vague idea across what's what's happening, the top line stuff. I mean, I, you know. Is that I think, called 7 a.m. post? Is it, what's... Yeah, the 7 a.m. Uh, sorry, the, um, not 7 a.m., the the Schwartz Media new daily news thing. It's just called post. It's just an email sign up, and just every day at seven a.m. they'll send you um, they'll send you a a summary of the big five sh- stories kicking around that morning. Lots oh, cool. of news organisations do this kind of stuff. It's all free. Yeah, it's <laughs> worth doing. Yeah, that Twitter, listening to podcasts a lot, um, and I mean just being curious is is helpful. But look, my there are certain areas in which my knowledge runs to absolute zero. Okay, and there are some areas where I might kind of sound like I know what I'm talking about, but if you dig a little bit deeper, it could be pretty shallow. In terms of the book, I was doing a lot of research, reading a, a couple of books around around certain topics, and just making sure. I think it's just like making sure that I do actually understand something. 
not can I get away with talking about this, but but do I actually understand the fundamental series of events that led to where we are today or the basic economic theory or the basic uh, principles about stuff? I think that's value, valuable. Um, but also as a comedian, you, you know, you, you want to be careful of not getting sucked into detail too much on big news stories. A, because audiences aren't paying attention to stuff at that level of detail. And B, your skill is really to talk about the big picture stuff. I think the best political satire is when someone can sort of step back and talk about the way our society works in, in pretty general terms or can notice the really big hypocrisies or the really big contrasts or the really big contradictions. So, you know, and it's it's sort of something a little bit deeper, like like a theme of, of politics or the news that you notice. So like in my new show, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about how Australia doesn't like changing anything. And so I list a whole bunch of examples of stuff that, that Australia just doesn't want to change. And that, you know, there's stuff like uh, the monarchy, Australia Day, getting rid of the Lord's Prayer in Parliament, legalising weed, then fixing the internet and, fuck, we couldn't even get rid of neighbours, you know. Um, Trying to, yeah, notice those really big trends and those big themes and getting to sort of a bigger truth rather than zeroing in on specific stories I think is is really attractive to me. A, because they last a bit longer, those bits last a bit longer rather than saying, hey, did you see the thing in the news this week? Um, And also you're sort of getting at something bigger, I think, that, that... that um, is a bit more universal, a bit more bit can last, yeah, um, a longer sort of truth about the way our society works, I suppose. That was a very rambling answer. But, um, yeah, there's no regular routine. It's chaos every day, putting information into my head and probably missing a lot of things. No, you've got you've got a routine. You've got the 7am uh, zeitgeist and you've got yes. Twitter. And uh, 7am is the podcast from Marge Watts. That's, that's a good little daily thing. Too. It's like the daily New York Times daily thing. And you follow it up. And I like the idea of standing back. One of the things that you've touched on a couple of times was um, thinking of if effectively what it is, is thinking of alternatives. And when you're saying that you've um, uh, interviewing someone, you've got to think about what question, what answers they might come up with. Mm. And I see that within lots of comedians in terms of they, uh, if you're writing some sort of piece and you think, where could this go? Where can that go? Do, do, you, do you use that in comedy? Because uh, are you looking at that in, in writing and then thinking uh, how many alternatives can there be uh, to this and then you choose the funniest one or do you is it, is it more of a natural... Yeah, God. I mean, some comedians are like, particularly American comics, I think, are uh, just way bit like they will work on the same joke for years, right? And they will try a million different combinations of words and slot in different punchlines and try different orders and stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah, this American sense of working on an act, particularly if putting into it in special, might take them like two years. Um, I guess i don't work like that i suppose the australian comedy scene doesn't quite work like that you are turning over an hour every year to do a new show at the festival pretty much yeah so sometimes it's just about writing as much as stuff possible as you can and then getting rid of the stuff that doesn't work yeah the process of sort of zeroing in on what is and isn't in your show is sort of just a little bit um, a little bit different I and I tend to be I tend to give up on stuff a lot more quickly <laughs> and just sort of say that bit didn't work it's gone I'll write it I'll write a new bit or I'll stick with what I've got 
And I probably could, I probably would benefit from actually thinking a little bit more about the, all the little tweaks and all the little words and word changes and stuff and, and the alternate ways that you can go. And some people, you know, they'll come up with a premise, like I want to talk about this particular premise of, you know, women be shopping or whatever. And then they'll think of, they'll throw like a spider diagram, of like yeah. all the different ideas that could come out of that topic. Right. And again, I, I've got nothing but respect for that level of discipline and work ethic. For whatever reason, I just, that doesn't tend to be where it, um, where it ends, ends up for me. I tend to have a, have an idea. I think I've got the idea. I'll write out the idea and I'll do that on stage. And if it does work, then I'll pretty much just keep it. Do, do you effectively do you do uh, open mic or I assume, I assume you sign up, but is it like in five minute bits, do you go out there and you, you try that five minutes or do you just sneak a five minutes into a, a headline set or? Yeah, I'd, see, I get guilty about that too. If you're getting paid to headline sometimes, like doing brand new stuff, I think is a little is a little bit risky. If I'm doing a spot on the lineup that I feel much more comfortable doing new stuff. Yeah, um, yeah some nights are presented as new material nights. I mean, ultimately, uh, trial shows too, which are like free hours where people are invited to come along and there's no money involved. And you are literally reading stuff off bits of paper and you are doing jokes about how bad it's going and you're saying stuff for the very first time. As painful and demoralizing as those are, they are very helpful. A, because they give you a deadline to write to. They're like, look, I've got to yeah. have something for this, this trial show. But also sometimes you just know it yeah at those things you start reading something and you go this is not funny i don't know why i stuck with this at all and you get halfway through another bit and you'll go this is this is yeah this is definitely something in here and it's worth pursuing it's again one of the endlessly frustrating things about um stand up there's just no no matter how long you do it for every time the new show comes around you're like how did i ever do this how did i ever write a com uh, an hour of comedy what's the secret here how am i not better at this already <laughs> It's just trial and error. There's literally no other way to do it. Even if you do a bit and it works on stage, it's not really a solid bit until you've done it, you know, 20, 30 times and, and you actually really understand the bit and have done everything you can to make it as, as bulletproof as possible. And when you say understand the bit, you mean what what words need to be there or what time what you need, need to be there? And what, what is the really funny thing about the bit? I mean, you'll see other comedians, like when we're all working up new material, we're watching each other's sets and stuff. And sometimes you see someone do a bit like, oh, that could be a great bit, but I don't think you know what the funniest part of that is. Like sometimes I feel like you don't know what the audience is actually laughing at here yeah. or where the really rich thing is. And and I'm, for whatever reason, I'm very good at, I think, at least seeing that in other people, seeing other comics do stuff. And I might say, hey, have you thought about doing this? Once or twice? I think lots of comedians are good at this. They can watch someone else do a bit and explain why that bit isn't working or how it could be better. But then when you turn that same focus on your own material for whatever reason, you're like, I have no fucking idea how to fix this. <laughs> God damn. Do you have anybody you listen to? Do, do you do, when you do new material nights, do you have people who you regularly do? Yeah, I'll listen, so I'll listen to goddamn anyone. Yes, anyone really. But uh, I've worked with directors before. Bob Franklin directed one of my shows. Yep. Um, Justin Hamilton's amazing soundboard. Um but yeah, honestly, it's it's often just other comedians at the gig, and all of us in our own tortured phase of trying to write a show. Um, and I'd love to do more writing with other comics. I think that would be actually really beneficial. Sometimes we don't sort of build that culture enough. Tommy Daslow is a great sounding board to me too. Oh. Um, yeah, and just tags, people checking in tags, and like, oh, what about this and that? And yeah, sometimes you give them a go, sometimes you don't. It's um, it's a very, it's a very, it is a very fun period, as stressful as it can be, leading up to sort of festival season. 
when everyone's sort of coming out with their new gear, I think everyone gets excited about seeing what else everyone else is banging on about. And watching other comedians bomb is really uh, helpful at that time. You're <laughs> like, oh, thank God. I'm not as shit as this person. Sadly, <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, yes, that is true. Um, uh, I, I've got basically two questions that I've written down, and I think one of them is really, both are really important to ask. Um as this is sort of inspired by working regionally as a comedian and how to get started and get moving, you started in Warrnambool, so mm-hmm. that's that's regional. What it is? No, it's regional as hell. It is. It's, it's a lovely yeah. part of the world, but it is regional. Um, what got you started? I guess locally. Where did where was your launch launching pad from mm-hmm. Warrnambool? Was it? Was there anything there or did you not have any inspiration there and immediately went to Melbourne? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I started doing comedy when I was living in Warrnambool, but I, I think it would be fair to say there wasn't much, if any, comedy happening in Warrnambool directly. I started doing the Class Clowns competition, which is run by the Melbourne Comedy Festival for high school students. Yep. And to do our first heat, I think we had to drive to Geelong. Is yes. Geelong regional? I guess. Yes. Or just no, t- well, it depends. I've, <laughs> I've, I've discovered recently that uh, Geelong is classified by different government authorities as in, in Melbourne. Okay, well. It's very annoying. Yes, I'll defer to your, your knowledge there. Yes, so, but also we were just used to driving long distances to do anything when you live in Warrnambool, public speaking competition, excursions, just constantly driving ages to, to do anything of, that was kind of cool. No shade on Waterville, but it's just, you know, 30,000 people doesn't have the same opportunities as, as other places. Yeah. There is a comedy room now in Waterville called Dirty Angel Comedy, which I still have not done, which I do feel guilty about, but I hear is really good. Yep. And the Comedy Festival Roadshow goes there. I mean, yeah, my first exposure to comedy was probably seeing people like Ross Noble or Danny Boy do their regional tours at the Melbourne Theatre, at the Waterville Theatre, rather, um, and and Comedy Roadshow coming through as well. Um, and... And it is extraordinary how many comedians are from country backgrounds or from outside the city. Almost, you know, the comedian in Melbourne who's born and raised in Melbourne is a very rare thing. Um, so, yes, for whatever reason, yeah, the story of comedy is a lot of people probably being misfits or growing up somewhere outside of a big city, maybe feeling a little bit out of things and then coming to Melbourne to make their dreams come true. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh- don't say it like that because it sounds like it <laughs> might come true. <laughs> uh, the last question I ask is always why comedy? If you can write and do research and have such an interest in the political sphere, this is this is how I'm going to approach this question. Why would you try and also make that funny? Why do the funny part of comedy? Why work in comedy? Why comedy? Firstly, um, political comedy, I think it's important. I think people get this backwards sometimes. People think, oh, you care about politics. Why would you go into comedy to talk about politics to try and change the world? Like, no, 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 no. I'm a comedian, first and foremost. I got into comedy and then my interest in politics and my desire to talk about the stuff I care about on stage emerged. Yeah. And so I ended up talking about politics. Yeah. No, no political comedian I know ever made the decision like, right, I'm going to change the world and do political activism. The best way to do that is to become a stand-up comedian. <laughs> I just don't think that ever happens. All right. It's, it's, it's the other way around. You love comedy. You love performing. You go, I want to keep doing comedy and perform and make people laugh. 
And while I'm doing that, I may talk about the state of the world and talk about issues and stuff that I care about. Yeah. And I do comedy because it's insanely fun. It's just, just when it's good, it's the best feeling in the world. I'm sure you've heard lots of comedians talk about this idea. The first time you get a big laugh or kill, it is intoxicating. And when you write a new bit and you try it out and it works on stage, it, it's just, it feels amazing. And it's just an extraordinary fun way to make a living. And, you know, it can be really frustrating. It can be really alienating sometimes. You do feel a little bit removed from a normal life or from other people sometimes. But ultimately, you just get to have a whole lot of fun, meet cool people, make people happy and express yourself and get positive attention. I mean, I think at the root of all of it really is my need for for whatever reason for positive affirmation from strangers and having attention. And then also mixed into that is a desire to, yeah, express what I think about the world to try and connect with other people and make them laugh in doing that. It's just extraordinarily fun. Um, And, you know, that might be, there might be a level of, well, there's definitely a level of narcissism to it. There's a level of selfishness, but um, I don't know. Whenever I think about, oh, should I be doing something more worthwhile with my life? I think, well, I'd, I'd just be miserable and I'd just be yeah. a miserable human rights lawyer or a miserable doctor or whatever. It's pointless. You know, just accept the fact this is who I am. And while I'm doing it, I'll try and do as much good as I as I possibly can, I suppose. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, what you touched on there is so many people do say that the the positivity being in a bring, having so many people be positive and then you might think it's narcissistic because you're bringing that but ultimately you're giving that yeah i'm much i am much i actually used to, used to be a lot more cynical about that and this idea that comedian would be like i just lo- i love making people laugh and i'm doing a service and i'm helping people in any way and i always just think really or are you just trying to get on tv get paid shit loads of money and have everyone like you but actually the older i get particularly during the pandemic, actually, or, the, or, or what have even just 2020 with the fire, bushfires and the pandemic and stuff, I, I think I get a much better appreciation of the fact that, no, for some people, when you're feeling really shit, when life is actually shitting on you, <laughs> as we all know it can, you, you do realise, and people will tell you this directly, your comedy, the thing that you do, their investment in you, the work that you're doing or the podcast that you make or whatever, does actually actually help them like make a tangible difference in people's life and the for the mental health for the way they feel about the world. And of course, I should have known that all the time because the comedians I love totally did that for me. You know, the, yeah. the in the same way that the musicians I love really transformed my sense of life and made me think and feel things in a way that I'll always be grateful for. Um, the, my favorite comedians did exactly the same thing. So why wouldn't I think that ordinary people wouldn't feel the same way about about comedy generally um uh yes it's it's a it's a lovely thing it's a lovely thing to be able to do yes and it's been lovely chatting to you tom <laughs> i'm oh. gonna wrap it up that's the that's my lovely uh hosting outro sort of thank you very much for your time thank you mate lovely talking to you mate cheers <laughs> cheers thanks <Luke. laughs> That was another good episode. Thank you for listening to Dissecting a Frog, presented by Comedy Victoria. To support this podcast and hear about upcoming gigs and opportunities, become a member, visit the website comedyvictoria.com.au and follow on social media at Comedy Vic. 
You can track down myself, Luke Morris, at Luke Morris Ha, but please don't take all this comedy talk too seriously because as EB and Catherine Wright wrote, humour can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process. <laughs>